electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. It is a familiar picture by now. Futures up, S&P set not only for a record high, but should open above 3249, making this the best annual gain since 1997. Europe's back to work. FTSE 100 up 11 straight, best run in three years. And oil and gold continue to catch bids as well. Our robot this morning begins with records on a roll. Stock set for a strong open. S&P closing in, as we said, for the best year since 97. Plus, the Apple surge on track for what would be its best yearly stock rally in a decade. The company as well also in talks to buy Japan's displays primary smartphone screen factory. And Tesla on a tear. Shares climbed above 430. The automaker expecting to roll out its first China-made Model 3s on Monday. There seems to be no stopping the year-end rally. Stocks are on track to hit some new record highs. NASDAQ, as we said, in the midst of its longest daily win streak since 2009, after closing above 9,000 for the first time ever. I'm watching 3249, as we said, but 3259 would give you 30% for the year. Right. We've only had two years in the past three decades with a 30% gain. Yeah, I mean, the pace in the last... Yeah, I would say a couple of weeks has been very relentless, basically sellers staying out of the way. Uh, and that has kind of created this incremental uh, move day by day. Now, I do think we have this unusual situation where the year-to-date numbers are, I don't want to say skewed because they are what they are, uh, but it gives a little bit of a different impression if you look at prior 30% calendar years because the market was just so bombed out last year. So I went back uh, over the last five quarters, so back to uh, September 28th of 2018, to now, the S&P is up 11%. Um, it's an annualized gain around 9%. That gives you a better picture, I think, of the overall trajectory of this bull market. And it's probably a more healthy pace. You don't necessarily want to be uh, kind of blowing off to the upside and say up 30%. In 2013, we were very close to an all-time high before we uh, went up 30%. Same thing with 97. So I do think you have to keep that in, in, in context because I think otherwise people say that the market's just been in this headlong rush higher and it really has only broken out in the last So you want to go year on year plus a quarter? No, I don't. I don't. I actually think that there's no wrong answer. It's just I think you want additional context to saying this has been an incredible year because most of the year was making up for what you lost in the pace in the matter of three months at the end of last year dangerous game because there's always yeah. going to be some uh, external factor that might have uh, affected the year ago comp. And, Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, I just think there was an unusual situation where you get this concentrated drop at the end of last year. Now, all that being said, um, the market has a lot of momentum behind it and it's getting to the point where I think you now have to ask the question, have we gotten valuations and sentiments stretched to a point kind of where we're at the end of 2016, 17 rather, at the end of 2017, where you know, you hear a lot of the bullish cases right now saying, well, if the public ever just kind of decides they love the market again. I mean, it, that's, it, it's sort of waiting for the overshoot in a way as opposed to something else. If the end of 2018 was the market saying growth is going to slow down in an unexpected way and we have to be careful, 
what's this rally said? It's telling you growth is going to be better next year. The question is whether the market is going to be able to capture much more on top of what we already have. Um, do you agree with, I think it was Surratt at the end of the show, they were talking about momentum and window dressing. I mean, we, we do talk about it this time of year. Yeah. My managers who want to show they own particular stocks. I don't know how much it really moves things. I, I kind of don't think that it's a matter of kind of curating the list of stocks you own to present to clients, at least in a conscious way. Right. I think right now it's like, why am I selling Apple today? I'm playing with, if I've owned this thing for 12 months, it's house money. I mean, entirely. So why am I selling it today rather than Thursday of next week or something like that when uh, it doesn't trigger a tax gain or something? So I do think there's incentives and mechanics that get you to this, this feeling of inevitable incremental gains. But um, I don't think it's really a matter of the, the, flip get, the switch gets flipped right. at the turn of the year. Interesting. Uh, we've got a piece online this morning uh, saying that Apple... Uh, is one of the names that analysts got the most wrong yeah. in uh, 2019. Sell ratings went from zero to five, even as the stock obviously more than doubled from its lows. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's still a very cautious analyst setup with Apple. And why is that? Because the street for years has been used to treating Apple as well, explaining why it traded at a discount and explaining why, you know, the upgrade cycle wasn't high risk or something like that if you were bullish on the stock. Well, now it's gone from literally, the first week of January, 11 times forward earnings to 22 times forward earnings. The earnings estimates are basically the same. They went down and come back up. Uh, The dividend yield went from over 2% to just about 1% right now. So if you're an analyst and you kind of missed this move, what's your rationale for saying now it's going you know, to 350. As went Bush said, one out, Mike. Well, you could, because and that's what exactly it, what it is. You do. And by right. the way, a lot of people said it should get revalued based on you know services being a bigger part. I really didn't think that was going to happen in a quick way like this. And maybe that's not even what this is about. Meanwhile, Carl, it's funny. We talk so often about the Fed, but I have to say, until I started looking at these numbers today, I hadn't quite realized the pace of not QE. Whatever you want to call it, adding to the balance sheet in a significant way. And Mike, having done it over the last few months in particular, at a rate of, what, $101.5 billion a month. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. They're they're adding back to the balance sheet. Um, They're doing it in a And here's why we kind of can play the semantics game of why it's not cute. They're doing it to keep the target rate where they want it and where they publicly said it needs to be. Um, I also think that they're, uh, in a sense kind of foaming the runway ahead of year-end, worrying about liquidity demands at which, the end which of the year. Which Powell said was a regular, normal thing. That's right. And now I think you do want to see what happens in the new year, whether you can change, you know, treatment of, of, of bank capital uh, regulations, where they keep reserves, all the complexities of it. I don't know if it plays out. And I think it's acting very much the way actual QE did in one respect, which is it's largely psychological. In other words, you can't point me to the $100 billion a month and how that makes its way throughout the rest of the capital markets. It right. just doesn't you don't, you don't think, the do, you think Do you think there's a debate directionally? Um, no, I think people feel like that's a yet another thing that we don't have to worry about, and there's a high liquidity environment, and they're making sure it stays that way. They did turn around, I mean, from having reduced that balance sure. sheet to adding to it pretty significantly in September. So totally. And at this pace, bottom. according to Charlie Bellella, would yeah. hit a balance sheet would hit a new high by April. At this pace, yes. yes. No doubt about it. This um, is a higher pace than QE. Yes. When we were averaging yes. about 80, 80 a month. Right. Um, Also, the U.S. government auctioned $2.6 trillion of Treasury securities this year. 
they found buyers for $2.6 trillion. Wow. Fed's not a big piece of that. Now, of course, that's a lot of refinancing, right? A lot rolls off and they refinance. But just think about that. So is the incremental size of the Fed's balance sheet really changing the supply demand that much when the government hit the market with $2.5 trillion of new paper this year? Right. I say not, that re- not really in terms of the flow of funds, but in terms of people's headspace, I think it does matter. One last thing on the big names going into year end Amazon, people still shaking their heads at this 4% move off a $40 billion market cap on a holiday news release that was essentially devoid of specifics. The one we get every year. Yeah. It's that same release right. we always get that kind of tells you these great things but tells you nothing. The new, I mean, record sales. I mean, the economy grows every year unless but we're in a recession. Also, yeah. Amazon's growing. So, yeah, you're right. And I do think that's why it was a kind of a tactical thing. The market, the Amazon had not participated in this last leg of the rally. It's still well below its highs. So that, to me, is a, you know, let's, you know, leave no fang stock behind kind of moved into year end. <laughs> that, it was lagging. Yeah. 23 versus Apple's 83, Facebook's right. 58. And well below where it had traded, you know. Year and a half, year and a couple months. Ago. The prime membership, even though we didn't get a number, of course, at least they gave you a sense that they added a lot. Perhaps that was a, a data point people or investors were were pleased with. Yeah. five million—that's a lot of num- potential new new members. Right. Sure. Um, again, you know, you want to you want to kind of have a quorum yes. <laughs> before you decide whether this is you know a new uplift. That's one thing we are lacking uh, probably this week and next. We mentioned Apple. Apple and Sharp are reportedly considering the purchase of Japan's display main smartphone screen factory. Sources tell Nikkei that the price tag could be as high as 820 million, and that Apple and Sharp are still considering how to share stakes in that facility. Interesting story uh, overseas, along with this Tesla news about uh, deliveries coming on Monday too. Yeah out of China as well. I mean, listen, they need display. You could imagine why they'd want to do potentially do that deal if you're Apple. They don't typically do deals that are much above. I mean, what I think the largest deal Apple's done is the Beats deal, if I'm not Yeah, correct. $3 billion or so. $3 billion. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you if I, you know, this year, but have how they many not times also... people have said to me, oh, they're going to do the big content deal. They're going to do the, you know, they're going to, they're going to. Perhaps one day they will, but... But, I mean, they, they've made smaller, I believe, semi-cap-related mm-hmm. uh, deals. So, so it's really just kind of internalizing supply chain yes. and rationalizing the stuff they have to buy anyway. It, it does. As opposed to being some bold strategic It bet. does. And, I mean, yeah. listen, Broadcom selling its RF business, which was what it built the That's business right. on to some extent. Um, uh, but apparently Apple's not interested in that. There had been some thought there, again, to your point, that when they want to sort of vertically integrate their for themselves, they might have interest in it. So they make their choices in terms of what they want to own and what they are happy to have providers for. Yeah. Uh, you know, just on the broader M&A point, because I keep looking at these indicators that say, oh, you know, things are getting a little bit giddy and investors are tactically. Um, if you look at M&A volumes as a percentage of market cap, we're really lagging right now. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, non-confirmation of the idea that the market is in this, you know, full all-out bull market mode. Because that's, you know, you would think at this stage, a lot of things have been clear. Maybe it's to come in 2020. But you haven't seen lots of snowballing kind of big strategic mergers, high concept mergers, things like that. Yeah, the don't, uh, don't discount the regulatory yeah. um, gates, uh, um, it's particularly for large deals that require, I mean, antitrust here has become sort of a weird crapshoot. Uh, you've got around the world and then China, of course. We don't know how that's going to resolve if we do get the phase one signing right. and whether Samer suddenly will become... Uh, 
much more uh, or appease a lot of uh, a lot of these deals. But it's been an issue. If yeah. you want to announce a big deal, your board is going to think long and hard about it. If you need those regulatory approvals around the world. Speaking of phase one, uh, South China. Morning Post today with a piece about what they're saying is a domestic debate within China about how to commit, if at all, to these purchases of yeah. U.S. goods because they don't want to run afoul of WTO. If these are unnecessary purchases, to what degree are they leaning on their own companies? And do they annoy other partners, specifically the Europeans, which right. might get a little rankled if uh, you're buying more than you need from somebody else? Which over the course of the last year has been the game, right? I mean, China was obviously raising tariffs on, on the U.S. in retaliation, and, and uh, you know other companies had greater market share. I, I wonder if the numbers are going to, we're just kind of leave this out there and we're going to you know sign some document. Well, that's not that good. targets. No, I, I think we're done talking about trade. You do. I, I think I mean, it's, you, right. So you don't think, I, I think you it's don't kind think of what it we're is. Not, we're going to end on the one yard line and not actually get a signing because nobody I don't know. Can really I don't know how to numbers. make that evaluation at this I point. Mean, you can't, but you can't. Um, um, the, well, let's well, that journal story. I think it was from last week was an interesting one, pointing out how far above these purchases would yeah. be from what it's has about been rerouting things. Even the that's highest now level. goes to Hong Kong and recategorizing the right. same imports as you know into China. Um, by the way, it's also that I keep making this point, but we're talking about committing to dollar values when you don't know what commodity prices are going to be tomorrow, let alone in a couple of years, right? And so if you're talking about, yeah, fine, I'll commit to a certain tonnage of soybeans, but the price can, can double or go in half from here, yeah, you know? That's true. Uh, by the way, Chinese industrial profits um, were up 5-4 in November. Prior month was down 9-9, so that's a pretty nice swing. Uh, but it, I did note on the cover of the Washington Post is a big piece about family farms yeah. uh, who were really looking for these purchases to happen, at least on, uh, at least on ag. Uh, some of the shipment and, and on soy has been encouraging. Started, but, yeah. yeah, but it's a question of, you know, the lags in whether that, you know, makes its way to these areas that have been hard hit. Right. right. When we come back, we'll get a lot of today's movers. A uh, fair amount of news given the holiday week. Another executive departure at Boeing. We'll talk about that. Uh, take a look here at the pre-market. Uh, keep your eye on 3249 for the best year since 97, as the Nasdaq's coming off its longest run in a decade. Back in a minute. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Boeing announcing Counselor Michael Luddig will retire from the company at the end of the year. His departure is notable for a number of reasons. He has been serving as a senior advisor to the Jetmakers Board on the 737 MAX crisis. Also been at the head of Boeing's legal defenses following the two fatal crashes, of course, that involved the 737 MAX. He is a, a former United States Circuit Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Uh, had been on the short list for George W. Bush in terms of Supreme Court appointments, never was nominated. Uh, but he also, guys, was very much um, 
In Mullenberg's quarter, uh, corner, I guess is what you'd have to say, supportive, of course, of the company and overall what he saw as his role in defending the company. But certainly his departure is an interesting one, particularly in light of Mr. Calhoun, the new C- incoming CEOs uh, reaching out to the likes of the FAA and to customers, sort of setting new, a new ground uh, for their relationships. Mr. Ludwig, somewhat combative. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it sort of seems to represent it just a statement, it's a new approach. Um, it's been fascinating how how the market has kind of absorbed every stage of this uh, of this story. And you're starting to see the confidence, you know, over time just get worn down. But it wasn't really a panic out move. I think that the street kind of preferred to hear the Mullenberg message that soon, soon, soon we're going to get the 737 back. And now it's, I think, setting in that we just you know, can't be that certain. So you bled away a lot of the valuation premium. The street has finally moderated its upside. But it's, it's a fascinating at how just the, the long-term story and the certainty that under Mullenberg this, this company was able to convey to people about well, the long-term cash flow. Not many crises related to a product have involved a company with such credibility, That's right. uh, such a track record, such influence on the economy. Um, not to mention uh, backlog of 20 years in a duopoly, That's, right? It, exactly. All those things have fit right exactly into that idea. But now, it came at a time, though, when arguably Wall Street had an overbelief in the certainty of the cash flows in the, in the order book because it had never traded at that valuation before. So the success that, that this management team had yeah. in basically uh, portraying Boeing as this incredibly stable business uh, got to a very high point before this all hit. It's going to be one of the most uh, listened to conference calls sure. of Q4 season. No without, doubt about that, right? Without, without a doubt. I always think about the guy whose job it is to find places to put all those planes. There's some guy at Boeing who's on the phone all the time. Can we put him here? Can we put him there? You got any space in your garage? You got a big garage? It's a lot. Uh, when we come back, former NASDAQ CEO Robert Greifeld will get some perspective on this record run past 9K for the NAS. Uh, take another look here at the pre-market as we get the opening bell in just over 10 minutes. Don't go away. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. 
You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Just about eight minutes till the opening bell. Let's bring in Slatestone Wealth Senior Market Strategist and CNBC contributor Kenny Polcari talk about the market action that we've witnessed over the last uh, 10 or 11 sessions. KP, uh, good morning. Good to see you. And you. Uh, you know, we we got to take every week of market action seriously. Do you think this is uh, amateur hour or not? Uh, uh, you know what? It's beginning to feel a little bit like amateur hour to me. It feels like it's all the artificial intelligence and algorithms that are just taking this market higher. It feels a little bit now, feels a little bit overdone for sure. And we've been talking about it now for a couple of weeks. But the last couple of moves and even this morning again today with the market up. You know, now it's just about new highs begetting new highs, and I get it. It's all the excitement. Look, another headline, blah, blah, blah. But I really think it's a little bit ahead of itself, and I wouldn't be surprised at all to see uh, to see it kind of pull back come the new year. You know, next Thursday when it's all of a sudden 2020 and, the, and you, you know, you start from scratch again. All right. So you, you actually think it's a calendar issue uh, once we flip yeah. it. What changes and how much does it change? Well, listen, because... Ask the first question, what has really changed in the last month from what we didn't already know, right? We've got this trade point 1.0, which we don't even know the details yet, but we supposedly have it. Retailers, which were expected to do well, are doing well, and we saw that yesterday in Amazon's report, so nothing's changed there. So what I think is going to happen in January, I think, you know, when the calendar changes, you got this new year, I think people that are going to recognize and realize these profits and some of these big moves that you've seen over the last month and a half are going to take some money off the table in the new year, partly because why would they, as, as Mike or David said it earlier in the show, why would they do it today or tomorrow when they can wait three more days in, in, uh, next Thursday and then, and then put off any of those taxes due until April of 2021? And so therefore, I, I would not be surprised at all. Kindly, I actually expect to see the market back off in January just for that reason, as people kind of rebalance and say, okay, I'm going to wait until January to rebalance and then realize, push those those gains into 2021. So, and, and I think it should happen. I actually think people are a little bit scratching their heads um, over this latest move higher. I think Mike made a good point, though. If you take it back to September of 2018, the market's really only up 11% and not that 35% that you see in the, in the NASDAQ, which is really led by five names, right? The FANG names. You take those names out of it, where is the Nasdaq really? I'd have to do that work to see, but maybe Mike even knows that. Yeah, yeah you know, Kenny, uh, real quick, taking a look back at the decade as well. You mentioned at the very beginning of your thoughts here about AI and algorithms. We don't talk about it that much because there's not much we can say about it, but just very quickly, give me a sense as to how the trading day has changed over the last 10 years. <laughs> Listen, we could spend the whole hour talking about that. I spent 40 years down there on the New York Stock Exchange, you know, when it was open outcry and zero technology. And today it's the complete opposite end. There's no open outcry and it's all technology and it's all driven by the algorithms that, you know, seek out arbitrage opportunities across the fraction market environment that we have today. You know, a direct result of a lot of, we can talk about this all day, why it is what it is. But the algorithms, you know, have kind of taken control of that, as we've seen across so many things that algorithms take control of, and, and have forced this market higher. I mean, listen, 
just this 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 reach for and we can see it these last couple of weeks this reach for stock 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 no human being is going to sit there and go you know this really makes sense to me because it's way way in my in my mind overdone all right kenny we hope to touch base with you a couple more times uh, before the end of the year kenny pulcari thanks man opening Happy bell in just about four minutes uh, back in a moment You're watching CNBC Squawk on the Street, live from the financial capital of the world, the opening bell in one minute on this uh, pretty busy Friday morning for a holiday week. Obviously, the record run here continues in uh, in the States, but Europe getting back to work after Christmas Day and Boxing Day. Uh, as we said earlier, FTSE 100 uh, is on, on its best run in a few years, even as uh, Boxing Day sales were down for the fourth year in a row. And there's more concerns about the trade deadline between the EU and the UK today. Yeah. Uh, they may have to extend that. It's uh, December of next year. Right. It, it does reflect the fact that it is a global move. I mean, that's been the case for three or four months right now, that it has been this kind of global revival of risk appetites. Europe as the cheapest market, probably, uh, you know, with the most headroom in that regard. We talk about records here, but also setting record highs in the past week, the Europe Stock 600, uh, Brazil, Switzerland, and the FTSE 250. So it's not just an you know, American phenomenon. There's the S&P and the uh, CNBC Real-Time Exchange at the big board this morning. It's HeartShare Human Services of New York helping individuals with developmental disabilities at the NASDAQ Data CA, Chinese Information Technology Systems Company. Um, so we'll see um, what leads here. A couple interesting pieces. You did a great segment yesterday on Dogs of the Dow, yeah. which is sort of a perennial year-end strategy look, and whether or not that's going to apply with the rate structure the way it is around yeah, the world. It has not worked this year very well. I mean, what you're basically doing is using it as a shortcut to find uh, kind of neglected, disliked, beaten down stocks. It goes back to a time when most Dow stocks had a similar dividend payout ratio, so you weren't always getting the same type of stocks every year. But nonetheless, right now it would mean you're kind of buying lots of energy, chemicals. Uh, Pfizer was on that list. 3M, of course, uh, has had a rough year. And uh, that would, you know, that takes a little bit of a leap of faith to say they're going to get it together. So it, it's a sort of a mechanism to force people perhaps to be contrarian, uh, which is always difficult because if you, you know, you're buying disruption, you're buying disrupted companies if you really want to buy uh, cheap, high-yielding ones right now. It's like the NFL draft. Yeah. The worst teams get the first pick. Worst teams get the first pick and then almost raises the stakes for that first pick versus the 30th right. pick. Right. Yeah. Uh, we'll watch that closely. Uh, interesting uh, piece in the journal about wages, which will be a story uh, next year as well as this year, uh, pointing out that non-supervisory workers, more than 80% of the labor market, basically rank-and-file employees, are seeing their fastest wage gains in a decade, uh, quote, a sign that the labor market has tightened sufficiently uh, to convey bigger pay increases to lower Lower-paid employees. Yeah, it's absolutely been um, kind of a, fa a good trend that's uh, that's shown up in this latest phase of uh, unemployment, kind of notching below four percent. I think you also have to keep in mind, though, we had lots of minimum wage increases go in the beginning of this year. There's another wave of them coming in the coming year, so that you know is actually kind of work to help to, to favor. Uh, lower wage workers, and it's, you're getting another round of it. Interestingly, too, of course, Jay Powell at the Fed is saying that's not a concern right now. He wants you know, overall inflation by their measure to really go above the target before they get worried about it. So that's been something the markets have said, fine. You know, that, that's a statement that you want to keep rates probably lower than, uh, than the markets and perhaps the economy warrant.
David, I see you shaking your head. Uh, just not a lot of red on my screen. I mean, not yeah. that it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just amazing when you even look at, Mike, of course, just the stocks that I watch, and this is a random grouping of, let's call it 100 and so whatever it may be, but so few losers for the year. I mean, I guess there's a reason that Jim and I come back to Viacom so often. Yeah, right. Because it is down 2.5%. You mentioned Pfizer, of course, down about 9.5% this year. The Milan deal, or that deal where they were spinning off there in a reverse Mars Trust deal and to, uh, yeah. to create that new company, not particularly well received. But very hard to find, uh, to find names that really ended the year uh, or are going to end the year down at all. No, not the year. Again, this 52-week uh, this period is, is definitely flattering uh, performance because there are a fair number of stocks that are below their all-time high. And I think that's also worth keeping in mind. I mean, start with Amazon. You know, it was above $2,000 and trillion-dollar market cap and all the rest of it. So um, I do think everyone can kind of feel like, you know, they get a trophy this year. Uh, but because, you know, it was, a good, it was a favorable starting point. But also, it has been a pretty inclusive rally. It has been... Uh, kind of broad, despite the fact that the very largest growth stocks have had an outsized effect on, you know, building the market cap gains for the S&P, it's not been to the exclusion of other stocks going up. It's just that, you know, they have more power. If you look at the the 10 worst performers on the S&P this year, they're all getting bought today. Yeah. All 10 are green. Hey, Biomed, Macy's, Oxy, Gap, Myelin, L Brands, Kraft, Mosaic. Actually, Macy's just went flat. Uh, but that's going to be a, a sign where yeah. laggards do get some love. You know, and also laggards are absolutely being swept up. Also, uh, brutal phase for short sellers. I mean, not that there's a tremendous short base in this market anymore. Um, and interestingly, the Wall Street Journal had a piece today about how big institutional money managers are now back to aggressively lending out their stock to get income uh, to short sellers. I mean, you look at Tesla. That's all you have to talk about, just the obliteration of that very kind of entrenched short base. Now, to me, I don't even know if, if, if it's gone away or basically just taking the pain at this point with that stock making new highs. Yeah, well, uh, significant new highs, well, yeah. above, now, well above that old 420 price that we were talking about just a few days ago as it passed it. You know, I'm looking at some of the groups, though, that have really taken off in the last three months, uh, and they are financials, of course, sure. which really have gone almost parabolic since sort of October. Right. does kind of move along with that long QE that we were talking about <laughs> at the Fed, but... Uh, and, and then healthcare-related names, as uh, we've pointed out so many times, as Elizabeth Warren's poll numbers seem to fade and the concern perhaps fading along with yeah. it of uh, Warren administration and what that might mean, broadly speaking, for the healthcare industry. Those names have caught up almost. Yes, and in both of those instances, it shows you how the market likes when you get afraid of something that doesn't come to pass, that's when you get the best gains. Because you were afraid of, you know, policy pressure on healthcare, but also an inverted yield curve in the summer yeah. was, you know, keeping a, a very firm lid on, on financial on valuations. Financials. You've released that. Uh, and now I think that creates the question for next year. Because if the market does best when things are going from kind of scary to not so scary or from bad to less bad, um, when people generally agree that the outlook is, is clear, it, it becomes more of a positioning game and have people raise their equity allocations as much as you think they should. Uh, are we going to get a big wave of inflows in January? But, and do earnings come through? Yeah, that's my, I was my question. Yeah. When we look at a JP Morgan, for example, the largest of the big banks at this point with a 430 plus billion dollar market value and a move of over 42% this year. Yeah. I mean, do we set up for a potential disappointment if it doesn't deliver? What are the numbers that J.P. Morgan is going to have to deliver to make everybody feel just fine about that? I think J.P. Morgan is kind of the exceptional anointed bank, right? right? It trades at this big premium. It does. It's 
it's kind of just, you know, my money's safer in J.P. Morgan shares, you know, than, than anywhere else. It's that kind of psychology that right. surrounds it. So I don't think it's about, oh, they have to make their numbers. It definitely reflects the fact that the bank does tend to make its numbers, and there usually aren't any nasty surprises. Uh, but I do think that uh, it's really the revaluation of the also-rans that's also been really interesting. Like, you look at the really cheap stuff like City, and, uh, and even B of A's had a great run. B of A's had an amazing run, yeah. and, yeah, to your point, City as well. Up over 50% yeah. this year. I mean, and again, a lot of that has taken place over the last three months. Right. Well, uh, in uh, terms of outperforming yeah. S&P. Uh, it's going to be interesting to hear about headcount in the coming quarter. Bloomberg's got this piece about job cuts at the banks. Uh, 77,000, almost 78,000 job cuts this year. That's the most since 2015. And about half a million in the last six years. Europe accounts for 80%. Wow. Yeah. As negative rates over there sort of did in their model and uh, and technology too exactly yeah negative rates and just this kind of permanent mode of kind of retreating from 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 the older business models and trying to figure out how what the what the right footprint is for for headcount and for size of uh, of cost base um, and you know that's because the numbers don't change that much right the the banks are not kind of doing crazy stuff you don't have to really worry about credit things right now it's much more about what am I going to place on a dollar of earnings today or a dollar of dividends today uh, in a world where we're not expecting a recession, therefore you don't have to really, you know, think like uh, credit costs are going to go up yeah. that much. So, C&I loans showing a little life, right? Yeah. It's always good. They've come back yeah. and they had soft patch, but yeah. Not a lot of corporate news uh, to share. We do have a, a bit on our own parent company, Comcast, uh, the journal reporting. Our Julia Borson also confirming uh, that Comcast is in talks to buy what would be the free TV video streaming company, Zumo, um, Julia's reporting says no, uh, that they uh, have confirmed it, um, but no comment from Comcast. Of course, it's not a surprise in a way when you think about the launch of Peacock coming. Mike Cavanaugh, the company's CFO, spoke about this a couple of weeks ago at a, at a media conference, uh, specifically saying that they will ramp up quickly next year. The spending on Peacock to get to over the first two years will probably be about $2 billion of aggregate investment in years one and two together, peaking at about 1% of Comcast revenue. He said hopes to break even by year five. Remember, it's a different streaming service and the ones that we're accustomed to now, Netflix, Amazon, uh, Disney Plus, uh, uh, and the like. It's ad-supported. It will be free to Comcast subscribers. And in fact, Comcast is even making efforts to make it free to other uh, other uh, subscribers as well, or other cable uh, subscribers. So it's going to be relying on, on being supported by ads. Pluto was bought by Viacom. They've made a lot of the growth that they've had in that platform. Don't forget when Disney uh, was building its service. It bought BamTech. It wasn't for its um, it wasn't for its subscriber base in any way. It was for its technology build out right. in terms of the actual ability to stream and the technology BamTech has. And actually, it's been interesting since Disney Plus has been out. Um, there has been some scrutiny of just the kind of quality of the stream and the stability of the video image and the syncing with sound because Netflix, I think, kind of had that figured out for a long time, and you don't even think about it. And Disney, I think, there were some you know. Hiccups, and even with Amazon, I know that they have had. So it's kind of interesting. The back end of it becomes very important. It is very the stability important. of that. Correct. Yeah. It's been a while. We had a couple. I remember one Christmas Eve, maybe, where Netflix had some accessibility issues. Oh, but it's just been years. Of volume. Yes. And stuff? Yeah. They and they are continually improving the the interface and the service. I mean, we all know that things come up right away. Yep. You can have to see right. the previews. That was not something even a year ago that you were capable of doing. 
with Netflix. But you're right, this is not an unimportant part of streaming, is the technology behind it and the investment that needs to be made. It's still fun to explain to kids how, when we were little, you couldn't just watch anything at any time. Oh. It's amazing. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, waiting for the letters in the mail. I mean, that's what it felt like. Checking the TV guide. Checking the TV guide. Yeah, right. Uh, so record highs across the board on this Friday. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Good morning, guys. Happy Friday. Uh, a little bit of a NASDAQ obsession going on, but there's a lot of other things happening as well. It's the sort of cyclical rally that's occurring. It's very, very noticeable. So if you look here all month, retail's been outperforming. Uh, emerging markets have been outperforming. China, and this is MCHI, the broad China ETF, outperforming. Semis have been outperforming. Even energy has been outperforming. Maybe a little mean reversion. I'll talk about that uh, in just a minute. We do have a global uh, cyclical rally, but particularly a global tech rally going on. Here's some of the big, broader global names. ASML, uh, Semiconductor Capital Equipment Company, trade over in Europe. Samsung, Taiwan Semi, Tencent Holdings. We're dealing with the Internet, of course, uh, and gaming here over in China. They're all outperforming, not just today, but on the month. So this is a global rally that's going on. Carl was very right to point that out. Of course, we are a bit overbought. What do you want? We have, we're up almost 4% on the S&P 500. I look at the short-term RSI. These are 14-day indicators. You get over 70, you're overbought. You get over 80, you're really overbought. That generally indicates it's hard to keep moving forward uh, with that kind of pace, and usually it slows down. Even the S&P also overbought. Predictably, we're getting discussions about it's time to rebalance. It's the end of the month. This is a little squishy to figure this out. Pension funds rebalance when they get very big, weird moves, like with the S&P up uh, dramatically here. The 20-year Treasury uh, up 4%. Uh, overall, uh, not quite 8% on that, but down 4%. You get these imbalances going on. That's a little bit odd. And so you get talk about rebalancing going on towards the end of the year. I think uh, that'll probably happen as well. One of the things that's really noticeable is the whole mean reversion story here. We've noted how energy's been the single sector that has gone nowhere in a decade. Virtually the worst performer, not just this year, but the decade. And all of a sudden, we've been getting rallies here. Now, there's a very good reason we're getting some of these rallies, but particularly exploration, production, and oil services companies like Halliburton, Schlumberger have been doing very well recently. There's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, obviously, is oil, which is the primary mover. So oil moving up here on the month. Put up the next chart and you see that. We've got a higher oil going on. Uh, we've got North America's situation at least is not getting worse. The supply-demand situation there is not doing worse. Uh, the mean reversal Emerging trade is very big. Of course, these stocks have been decimated over the last four or five years, and there are some potential opportunities if the situation stabilizes. If you want to be a real cynic about this trade, let's buy oil because it's so underperformed. Uh, what's missing is a real upturn in earnings. We don't have that yet, and we really don't have a lot of cash flow improvement overall. So you can be cynical and say, oh, this is great. We have a multiple expansion, but we don't have a lot of improvement in the fundamentals. And that's sort of correct. What we do have, though, is much more stable situation concerning dividend yields. And so you've got some of these companies out here that are 4, 5, 6% dividend yields. Schlumberger is at 5, Exxon's at 5, Homerican Payne uh, at 6%. That's on the high end, obviously. But the important thing here is that this situation is not as dangerous as it was two years ago when there was dramatic discussions of, oh, no, no, you don't want to get involved in this because you're going to face a potential dividend cut. Much more stable. And I think that's starting to attract people as well. There's a big pipeline company, Kinder Morgan. Chevron at 4%. So overall, uh, maybe some mean reversion going on, but I think there is some argument to be made that energy should be looked at a lot more closely in 2020. Guys, back to you. Yeah, interesting. Looking at those names reminds me, NatGas is at an all-time lows, Bob. That's worth mentioning yeah. with these pipeline companies as well. Thank you, Bob Bassani. More uh, on today's movers now. Let's go over to the NASDAQ and check in with Frank Holland. 
Hey, good morning, Dave. You know, the Nasdaq starting the day on hitting a fresh intraday high right after the open. So far today, Apple is the best performer, up just about a percent. Following news that it has plans to buy a smartphone screen factory from Japan, Japan Display over in Japan. Again, that stock moving higher today. We're on a fresh record high watch for Apple and two other FANG names, including Google and Facebook. Even though Google is trading a bit lower right now, we're also keeping a close eye on the IBB ETF. That is the biotech ETF trading slightly lower today, but still on pace for its best year since 2014. Since the open, consumer-facing stocks like Pepsi, Kraft Heinz, they made a surge earlier today. It's really a strong showing for them as we talked about yesterday, consumer-facing stocks really pushing the NASDAQ from 8,000 to 9,000. And uh, Carl, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you very much. When we come back, uh, the 2020 playbook on the delivery wars as we go to break, take a look at the movement in treasuries today. Ten-year around 187 as we continue to look to see how the bond market is uh, viewing this ongoing rally in equities. We're back in a moment. How will the Amazon effect come into play in the new year? Frank Holland has the 2020 playbook on the delivery wars. 2019 is on pace to be another record year for e-commerce, with holiday online sales forecast to increase as much as 14%, according to the National Retail Federation. And the trend is expected to continue in 2020. Here's what to watch. First, e-commerce exceeds expectations. The global e-commerce market could grow to $4 trillion in 2020, according to UBS, but has the potential to be even larger as more retailers offer same-day and next-day shipping along with added curbside pickup options. Also, total sales made by smartphone are expected to increase by 32% next year, according to eMarketer. Second, Amazon acquisitions. Amazon's e-commerce empire is built on strong logistics on the ground and in the air. Amazon currently operates about 50 planes and expects to have 70 flying by 2021. Look for acquisitions in 2020 as it continues to grow its capacity for ground logistics and delivery. And third, drone delivery. FedEx and UPS are battling to be the leader in residential drone deliveries. Both companies are testing technologies with drugstore chains to deliver prescriptions and retail goods. Amazon and Google also have their eyes on the skies when it comes to shipping. 2020 may be the year e-commerce takes flight in a whole new way been an interesting year. Of course, we talked uh, extensively about Amazon at the top of the broadcast, but their spending continues. They're obviously rolling out of a significant competitor on the ground to the likes of FedEx and UPS sure. and or replacing FedEx. Well, they're not using FedEx at all anymore. Relatively small part of their revenues to begin with, but going to zero. And just the business in general, I mean, it seems like it just the market is unsure if the delivery companies can capture margin in even though the demand for instant delivery is going up and the volumes that are put through the system keep going up. I mean, UPS is flat over two years, even though it's well outperformed FedEx. And I think it is because it seems like that's the pain point in the entire uh, sort of delivery chain is, is, is those companies, whereas, you know, the other companies are kind of just apps and software and traditional retail um, that have it a little bit easier. Well, one thing's for sure, a rebound in global trade wouldn't hurt anybody. Absolutely. Uh, That's That's certainly what FedEx's complaint has been about. Uh, Speaking of Amazon, it's topping this morning's list of S&P gainers as we look for record highs uh, as the Dow's coming off a touch here, but still up 51 points.
Another box office hit for the Star Wars franchise. Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker took in $32 million on Wednesday, the second highest Christmas Day gross in history behind Force Awakens. The global haul for Skywalker now passing $500 million in just eight days, despite some of the reviews that we yeah. talked about uh, just a weekend ago. Yeah, exactly. So maybe proving it's kind of critic-proof at this point. Well, who knows? I mean, I guess, uh, you know, how, how, whether it has legs, whether in fact it can meet uh, some of the prior chapters, I, you know, I don't really know. But uh, it seems like the strategy of, of doing the Christmas Day release has been vindicated. I- Iger answered a lot of critics about the cost of Lucasfilm years ago. But by now, it's already turned out to be an amazing purchase. But the, the ongoing role of Lucasfilm, especially for Disney+, Plus, will be an interesting one. How much can they make uh, without oversaturating the, mar- the demand for Star Wars-related content? Without a doubt, although The Mandalorian seems to be doing quite well in terms of uh, attracting people to the Disney Plus service or at least giving them a reason to stay uh, as being sort of one of their originals. You take a look. I just watched Adam Driver in Marriage Story. Very different role for him there. Yeah. In- intense, right? It was. Yeah. Although Intense I in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Netflix has Marriage Story, uh, The Two Popes, obviously The Irishman. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this, we're getting to a point where if you, if you want to see probable Oscar noms, you're going to have to have Netflix. Right. Yeah. It's funny. We were talking about, oh, they're going to lose The Office and Friends, and now it's prestige cinema. Yeah. It's like, the, on, like what Netflix, HBO basically. used to be. Yeah, right. for sure. Yeah. Well, and they would claim they still, yeah, yeah, exactly. they still are. We're going to watch that second half of The Irishman one of these days. <laughs> we really are. We're definitely going to do it. Um, that's probably why we talked about this yesterday. Scorsese, why would you go if limited release? Yeah. Uh, but if you get creative freedom and make it as long as you want, Marty. It is still in some theaters. Yeah. So, I mean, you can have it both ways on some level. Yeah. Because he wasn't going to get a, you know, a six-week you know, broad release with that movie yeah. anyway. You got your your top ten this year, Carl, at all? I shouldn't make one. Yeah, you should. Hey, You're kids, very good at these I mean, things. with kids, like, it would be Jumanji, uh, Frozen 2. Frozen 2, yeah. Others, you know? yeah. That's how it goes for parents. You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.